Welcome to Yes Indeed Pod, a podcast about indie tabletop role-playing games where I interview creators about their games and inspirations and about the theory, process and practice of game design. My name is Mark Shepard, your host today and always, and your friendly local indie enthusiast. This week I'm talking to my friend, editor and fellow co-op member John Garrett. This interview, nominally about their forthcoming vampire game Bloodspell, was a delight to record and edit, and I'm stoked to be able to finally share it with you. Enjoy! Now that's out of my head and into yours, let's talk indie. So today we're talking to John Garrod. Welcome to the podcast, John. Hello. Would you like to take a minute to introduce yourself and let us know what you do in the indie tabletop role-playing game scene? Okay. I make and edit odd little RPG type things, sometimes with the Santanaro Co-op, sometimes with the Free Kriegspiel Collective, and sometimes as a solo artist with mates. And I do all of that under the flag of Malediction Games, which is the latest version of a gaming blog, website, info dump, thought portal that I've been running for about 10 years. I used to knock around the wargaming blogosphere a lot. I was the guest RPG columnist on House of Pancakes back when that was alive and relevant. And then as that sphere kind of fell down, I drifted more and more into RPGs. As well as making them, I also sell, host, and sometimes demo them through my work. I work in an independent bookshop. And I also study games. I am doing a PhD in taking RPGs far too seriously and have written and presented on game mechanics and the gothic. My research is all about death and difficulty and media archaeology and how games work as sort of self-transformative texts. It all sounds quite pretentious, but I promise it's more fun than that introduction makes it sound it sounds really fascinating it's definitely the kind of thing that i would be interested in reading uh, and it's also certainly the kind of thing that i would be interested in doing i'm very down with that and pretty much with everything that you're saying i mean it's really interesting that you mentioned wargaming because i think one of the things that is kind of not obvious to the american indie scene perhaps is that british ttrpgs is like very much in the shadow of wargaming and that's kind of fascinating but also kind of it, it's it's a bit weird to, to sort of think of that. I mean, I'm not entirely sure of the, the full history of, for example, Games Workshop, but I feel like a lot of that is tied up with, I don't know, TSR and some of the other stuff that happened in the 70s and 80s. So it's endlessly fascinating to me. Yeah, definitely. Cause it, it, was, it, was something, it was something that's come up um, whenever one of those conversations comes up on the Twitter about, so how is the RPG scene in your country different from the US? Because yeah. it benefits everyone to know. And I always make a point of bringing up that... In particular, the British OSR does not look much like the American-led sort of D&D-driven drive. That there's a whole parallel tradition over here, which, as you've said, kind of exists in the shadow of Games Workshop. It's basically stuff that Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston have done. So it's fighting fantasy, yeah. Warhammer fantasy roleplay, and it's all the stuff that they used to distribute because they brought D&D to the UK and they brought Call of Cthulhu to the UK. And there's trad RPGs over here are touched by the hand of Workshop in quite a fundamental way. I, I can see a clear division in what kinds of games they are, but I've always done both, if that makes sense. The original Fighting Fantasy game books taught me to read. Right, yes. So those are as fundamental a part of the gaming experience that I've had as anything that involves pushing toy soldiers around. That it's sort of They're kind of parallel traditions that touch off each other in so many ways and places, but I think it's a different kind of relationship to maybe what you see elsewhere. I think it's really uncommon to meet a, I, I hesitate to use the word gamer, but to meet a tabletop gamer in the UK who has not at some point been completely obsessed with Warhammer and Warhammer 40k. Yeah, 40k in particular, it's like our universal locator, isn't it? You know, it's... It is, yeah. And like, it, it's as much part of nerd culture, you know, introducing which was your favourite 40k army as it is for, I would imagine, most people to introduce which is their favourite football team. Yeah. It's just very underplayed, I think, and it's not obvious from TTRPG Twitter that that is where a lot of us are coming from. That's the tradition from which we originate. And for the record, I play Necrons. I've always gravitated to Undead in any game that I Oh, have. my friend loved Necrons, and he, was ju- he would just completely take apart my Sisters of Battle army every time. I stopped playing in the end because I was really bad at it. <laughs> what I like about RPGs is that you can't lose, and that's a much more attractive prospect. I talked about them as kind of parallel traditions, and I was, that is kind 
kind of the difference that there's the essentially competitive nature of wargaming where you are responsible for each other's fun, but the objective of the game is still, in a way, to stop the other person being able to do anything fun. Yes, yeah. That's sort of the efficient way of winning of the thing. There's always, that, there's always that tension between the objective of the game and the point of the game. Yeah. Whereas the RPG presses that uh, collaborative button, the idea of the role-playing game as a cooperative process, and I always want to take that further than I think is normal even for the RPG scene, because I do see them as a kind of writer's room. So as far as I'm concerned, you're all there trying to curate something that's worth playing and that's kind of got all of your directions and all of your ideas and selves in it and working in the same way. So I'm very, very opposed to the ideas of the adversarial system master. And I don't like secrets either. I'm I'm not the biggest fan of secret roles or of plot twists or of anything where you have to have the coward's cardboard between you and the players. (laughs) That's fundamentally uncooperative to me. As I age and become ever more weary, I don't even like RPGs where... it's not so much that failure is an option. I just don't, you know, like pass fail role systems aren't of any interest to me anymore because I don't care whether or not you fail. I care about what the price of failure is. And that's yeah, what I want. Yeah. That's what I want the game system to provide is to, is to say, here's what you want. And if you, if it happens or if it doesn't happen, isn't as important as why it happens and how you feel about it, the way it happens. Yeah. Games that are about how you feel about what's happening to you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I sort of think that's a lot of what modern story games and Powered by the Apocalypse games are sort of about. Okay, I think I will probably get a lot of people being cross that I'm fundamentally misunderstanding it. But like, to me, that's not what the old school Renaissance movement is about. That's one of the reasons that maybe OSR interests me a little bit less than other movements. But maybe you can <laughs> twist my arm on this and tell me why I'm wrong. It's it's a funny one because the OSR to me, and this is coming from somewhat this you know this is coming from the perspective of someone who you know I'm British OSR to my bones, so I had a different kind of experience of old school gaming to what I think a lot of the Twitterati had, and certainly from the kind of to the American led OSR, I'm kind of an outsider looking in from which point of view. I think it's quite telling that no one ever seemed to be able to agree on what the R in OSR stood for. (laughs) And so you might have an old school revolutionary who is actually quite interested in rulings, not rules, and in sort of dynamic play that's very much about genre emulation and telling the kind of stories that Jack Vance or Fritz Lieber or whoever would have written, which is an interesting kind of design to me because that's a system that's designed to evoke a particular vibe and a particular style and to bring out a particular kind of playfulness that follows that conduit of genre fiction which is fine but then you've also got you know your old school revivalist who is your old school retro cloner i suppose who's just trying to put ad and d or ob and d back in print for the 14th time that it's been revamped and that's less interesting i think there's there's room for a couple of things like that because of course when they all started it was fundamentally a dead system and it was out of print and i you know i play i I play a lot of massive sarcasm quotes dead games and i think they've got a lot to recommend them but you know from a sort of archival point of view and from opening up that older play style i think it was useful to put say osric or something back in print because now you've got something you can point at and say well this is as close to it as we're going to get and that i think was worth doing and then you've got a kind of reactionary streak which i'm not interested in because it's that is very much interested in stamping your feet and saying well fourth edition D is a crock and story gamers are not to be trusted and all that delicious sort of thing i'm not going to go out there and like flame people but like there is a lot of bad faith and bad actors in that community and it's not the kind of thing that i want to be involved with whereas what you know the two things there that you've described in terms of revival and in terms of revolution they're really interesting i, I sort of think some of that gets bandied under a different name especially the revolutionary sort of gets called a bit sword dream nowadays rather than osr because they want to get away from the other half of the market but you know it's it's really interesting to me that you know you can kind of um have a bit of a taxonomy even of the osr before you even start into the enormous general game taxonomy thing which has a 
sort of a red herring yeah i definitely empathize with that because it's in, it's interesting that i didn't feel the project that i've kind of got my eye on longer term is something that's quite osr inflected and bizarrely for me quite D inflected but i didn't feel that its time had come until the free kriegspiel revolution collective got started and again that was a sort of that's a space that exists to carve out room for itself as a political tendency and say, well, we, we'd kind of like a little bit of space from another crowd that are very much more no politics in our gaming, arguing for the status quo. And that's not... I don't want to put anyone on blast because I wasn't there. I arrived as the dust was settling and it was just very, very good timing that there was a, a tendency like sword dream emerging in a space that i was really interested in working in and yeah. by happenstance by serendipity that space is now there and it's quite exciting to be working in yeah absolutely i mean it's how i feel about indie at the moment in general is that it's very diverse and dynamic and it's doing all sorts of different things that are in a way a lot more exciting than what's happening in the mainstream which is in general just rehashes of old stuff and trying to sell old stuff in effect to a new generation which is fine uh, but it's not what interests me what interests me is the cutting edge yeah I'm, I'm i'm very down with how osr is transforming into something else if you like so like you're sort of mentioning some of your own projects there and i think that might be a good time introduce what you're working on at the moment which uh well why don't you give us an elevator pitch for what that is okay so at the moment the big thing on the table is the extended edition of Bloodspell, which is the vampire rpg that i put together from the bones of epidia ravicol's wolf spell and the meat on those bones is all of the kinds of vampire story that i didn't think were being enabled very well by the major player in the vampire rpg category as it were i have taken to describing blood spell as basically only lovers left alive the rpg <laughs> Which is, you know, that is an excellent elevator pitch. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, so it's a vampire game. Tell us a little bit about what that looks like to make and to play. Okay, um, well, to make, as I say, it's it's built off one of Epi's designs because I, I got Wolfspell, I backed that because the conceit of doing a game on a record sleeve without a record in it was conceptually engaging to me. I mean, I, I, you know, then of course, you know, that more, you're, thing came along a year later and actually put the record in there which i think stole its thunder slightly so i picked up wolf spell which is one of those you have two stats and each one is a die type and you roll them to see which of the two wolves inside you is strongest in a given moment i'm not doing it a great service there but it basically takes two personal qualities and it puts them in tension and its mechanic is about how that tension resolves itself in a scene and in a very loose kind of pretext for story where you've become wolves in order to solve a problem and then when you've solved the problem how, how do you come back yeah and i looked at this system and i had chunks of the newest vampire the masquerade rattling around inside my head and i had high hopes by pink floyd rattling around in my head as well because (laughs) i always got pink floyd song rattling around in my head because of who i am as a person and i just suddenly thought you could make a vampire game out of this all you would have to do is to take those two stats and make them something that pertains to the condition of being a vampire. And what I came up with was desire and ambition. Yeah. So there's this idea that there's there's what you want immediately and there's what you want to do with forever. The original strapline of the game was something like, you're going to live forever, what do you want to do with it? Yeah. And after that, things just sort of fell into place that I was looking at the modifier for the roles which is supposed to be and i think i think effie called it feral or something like that and i went well okay that's thirst that's the desire for blood making itself known right and i wanted to put in a bit of character customization so i had a counter push from drive which is sort of your character's moral imperative yeah because the one thing that i definitely wanted to do with this was to make a game about being one of the good ones yeah yeah because vampires in and of themselves are not protagonists. The vampire of the kind of classic English literary tradition is an antagonistic force. It's a predator. 
all of the yeah, stories absolutely. are about the people the vampire is victimizing. Yeah. And so in order to flip the script and to get a protagonist and a playable character out of that, you need something that the vampire is trying to do, some kind of better person they're trying to be, in order to push against that and to say, well, on the one hand, I'm so thirsty. On the other hand, I'm not going to bite you now because that would be wrong. And the drives um, that I came up with, I think my favorite one is probably justice, which is the idea that vampires have to police themselves because no one else is going to do it. I mean, there might be other people around to do it, but it's probably going to be a bit more violent than the vampires going to do it, right? So it's going to be bad for the whole community. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And I didn't want to do a violence simulator because, again, it's, it's not the kind of game that Wolfspell is, and it's not... I don't want to sound like I'm some sort of complete peacenik here because, obviously, you know, I play quite a lot of trad games which are unacceptable behavior simulators and so theft and violence are always at the bottom of them but the kind of vampire stories that i like are things like only lovers left alive or byzantium or carmilla or um the one that's french so i can't pronounce the title of it but it's um I always like those sort of slow, intimate, and quite aesthetically driven vampire yarns, and I wanted a game that did that, rather than a game which took the usual kind of premises and pretexts of the trad RPG and bolted fangs onto it. Yeah. Because there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just that already exists. I've got three different versions of it on a shelf downstairs, so... I know that there are people working on sort of similar ideas of, well, if you have forever, how do you ensure that you are going to have longevity and that the people from whom you feed are going to be around for longer this is probably a secret project that i'm not really supposed to be talking about which is why i'm not mentioning any names but i'm sure you know who i mean i know exactly who you mean (laughs) and my god i'm looking forward to it yeah it's going to be good i mean i kind of have to say that i'm not generally that interested in horror (laughs) as a genre to play neither am i that's why i didn't make a horror game yeah so that's why this sounds really cool (laughs) i had this bugbear some years ago before kind of interest in it was really revived someone asked me if you'd been around i know we're here to talk indie but you can't have a conversation with me without talking about white wolf products sooner or later well no not really (laughs) And we've already mentioned Games Workshop, so we might as well accept the corporate presence and roll on with it. So someone asked me years ago, what would you have done if you'd been in Justin Achilles' shoes and you had to make Vampire the Requiem? Would you have done it differently? And I thought about that for a second, and I went, all right, here's what I would have done, because this is what could have been if only it had come out a year later and the trend had been more apparent. It would have been Vampire the Requiem, a storytelling game of paranormal romance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely would have, would have been. completely zigzagged the horror tone entirely, and that would have been a much, much cleaner break with what had gone before. Sure. And to get back into talking about all of those vampire games that are coming through, I think a lot of them are definitely inspired by this sense that it doesn't have to be horror just because it's a vampire story, and there's a lot more you can do with vampires. Yeah. Like One of my best friends, and also proofreader for the first iteration of Bloodspell is Erin Horakova, who's a very, very good critic. Read her piece on Star Trek. It's cocking brilliant. But Erin and I have, you know, kind of experimented with playing a whole bunch of trad RPGs together because she was trying to figure them out as a medium. And when we came around to doing one of the vampire games, she said that vampires to her are not intrinsically interesting if they're just being vampires. It has to be another kind of story in which vampirism happens to be a complicating factor. And the more I thought about that, the more I thought that, no, yeah, I get it. Yeah, that's what paranormal romance is essentially. You know, it's a romance, you know, you're talking a romance novel or romance movie that happens to have a vampire in it or whatever. And I was thinking Uh, about it's the way that Kim Newman in his various guises has always written vampire stories as well that he'll be doing a detective story or a kind of post-fantasy like the come down from a fantasy epic sure um, or a locked room mystery which will happen to have a vampire protagonist yeah that to me is more interesting than dwelling at great length the vampire as catalyst for horror because like i said you run into that problem where well the catalyst for horror isn't really the kind of person i want to pretend to be for weeks on end or hours on end or even more than a few minutes on end yeah absolutely so like when you get to that sort of 30 hour mark and you decide whether or not you're interested in a game then you know you have to decide whether this is the way that you want to go forward and certainly the the sort of horror rpg as you describe it is not interesting to me but the game where you are 
incidentally a vampire that sounds very cool that sounds very interesting <laughs> and is sort of a, a, a mode in which you can explore other themes from the perspective of well for example we are mortal what would we be like if we were not mortal you know yeah. um that kind of thing and i'm sure there are other lenses that we could look through things that's the first one that i thought of that idea of lenses i think is what does it because you know like i said up front in another life i'm a researcher in gothic studies and my, one of my phd supervisors is very very big on the idea of gothic as a lens not a genre you don't run around saying that such and such a thing is gothic you say well i'm going to read this thing gothically uh, right. and see what jumps out of it and i think like the idea of to read a problem vampirically yeah okay yeah <laughs> That's really interesting. I mean, I love the idea of lenses. I was sort of introduced to them through somebody writing very eloquently about Blades in the Dark, which is maybe an odd introduction to that concept. But somebody saying that when you play Blades in the Dark, you are investigating social problems and class division and class warfare through the lens of a ghost-infected city. And it's, it's very interesting to sort of think about the different ways that you can... Uh, that you can examine a piece of media through the through the ideas that it portrays. I mean, I'm probably butchering this concept completely, but certainly I thought it was very interesting. That's really good, though, because yeah, that, that's kind of turned a key on the whole forged in the dark style of making and playing for me as well because it hadn't right. like i hadn't grokked it to that extent but suddenly i understand why brinkwood works as well as it does yeah because the whole thing is about struggle it's about yeah. strife and like there are lots of forged in the dark games that are about inherent struggles that exist in our society but when they fail when forged in the dark games aren't good it's when they are not exploiting those inherent yeah when they just when they just go back to being an unacceptable behavior simulator exactly yeah and like it can even happen in blades in the dark you know if you don't take the idea that everything around you is corrupt and everyone is awful and you just sort of say oh let's go out and murder and steal just for the hell of it that misses 90 percent of what john harper is trying to write <laughs> in that game yeah. and that's a kind of play which can be fun it can be cathartic i wouldn't dream of saying that i am somehow morally above that sort of thing because i'm not fooling anybody <laughs> with that rather fatuous claim but I do think that it lacks a moral centre. And again, sort of because because the gothic kind of inflects everything I do, I'm gonna I'm just name dropping awfully here. But the other uh. day I was privileged to be in the online presence of um Sarah Perry, who's the author of Melmoth, which was my book of the year last year. Right, yeah. And something that she said about her fiction really caught me with this because she was talking about kind of the moral duty of the author, which is not quite to tell people what they should think, but at least to present some sort of moral certainty, some sort of yeah. moral perspective, and have that saturate the work. Because without it, without that moral centre, it's just horrible things happening to people. I sort of feel like it's fun to do these kind of criminal-minded, let's go out and steal stuff and not really worry about who we hurt on the way and not worry about the consequences for very short-term play, like one or two sessions. But if you're going to engage and invest in a character long term, you have to believe that they are, they at least think that they are morally obligated to do what they're doing. Yeah. Or for CRPGs, I suppose. With a computer RPG, I've always felt, that, as distinct from the MMO or something, but, you know, the classic CRPG is basically a single player experience. And that's just you and your desires and your impulses in an environment without consequences because it's all simulated and i think yeah there it's definitely fun to, to take the complete bastard path sometimes see what comes about from it i always come back with ttrpgs and with the design and the play thereof to thinking if i'm sat in a room with three of my closest mates and i have to s describe these happenings with my actual mouth and see their actual facial expressions are they still going to want to look me in the face when i'm done and will i be able right. to look them in the face absolutely when I'm done? And that's the kind of difference in context, I think. Moral compasses in TTRPGs are very interesting. And like, yeah. it sort of made me think about the alignment chart in Dungeons & Dragons. Take a shot. <laughs> that's interesting that this is typically applied to characters, because in a way, it sort of only applies to players. I have long been of the opinion. Thank you for giving me the angle to get this in, because I, I, I'm really proud of this line. I will, and I will, I will, if not die on this hill, but at least stub my toe quite badly on it. 
that I think <laughs> all D&D characters, and to an extent all trad RPG characters, are chaotic evil until proven otherwise. Yeah. Because you look at the <laughs> dynamic in a lot of player groups, and that's how they work. They take what they want, they ride roughshod over rules and consequences and social mores. Yeah. They run on rule of, if not the strongest, then at least the loudest. Chaotic evil, all the way down. Yeah, absolutely. And, like The player has to sell me on the idea that that's not what they're doing. While we're talking about this, there's something else that, when you were talking about the idea of consequenceless action, it brought to mind the moment that really kind of crystallized the way I think about RPGs. It was another one of those, you're sat around a table and something happens in moments where um, about 12 years ago, I was running Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay for a group of people I didn't know very well, plus my partner, who at the time, you know, at the time we'd only been together about three years, so um, we were still kind of working out how much of this stuff we wanted to do together. And something happened about four sessions in there, but one of my players just got so bored with me doing my, well, well, this is basically the Maltese Falcon in Warhammer shtick, and just straight up started killing the supporting cast. No provocation, no reason, just because he wanted to kill something. Right, yeah. And I just sort of blanked out, because like, you're in the middle of a city of you know tens of thousands of people. They have law enforcement. Are these characters of ours not civilised people with jobs and things, because it's Woofrup? What's gotten into your head that has made random murder seem like it's an acceptable part of this world? Um, that it's a convention game that you're talking about is kind of probably the hint there in a way because not only is it consequenceless in that you're not doing this long term but you're also not going to probably play with these people ever again but it, it still baffles me to think that people can kind of break their own immersion just for the fun of doing a bit of ultraviolence it doesn't work for me but it's because it in, it's because violence has like it's it's lost its appeal to me in role-playing games in a way yeah, I I don't yeah, I I don't think it's entirely gone for me because you know, I can run a campaign or a chronicle or whatever and there'll be a couple of big fights because I like a fight as much as anyone, but I like the build up and the fallout. Yeah. Around that fight. I like it to be embedded in what's happening. And I think if I wanted a spot of the old ultraviolence, well, you know, this is where being a war gamer comes in handy because I can go off and play some Necromunda or whatever. Right. You know, if I want Absolutely. a campaign that's just about people with in with people with outlandish haircuts shooting at each other, that's why I own a Necromunda gang. Sorry, I have to interrupt you there because Necromunda is kind of the game that got me into being interested in role playing games because it's so much more personal than Warhammer and Warhammer 40k. So that's uh, a shout-out from me to Necromunda. <laughs> I think it is a much more interesting game. I definitely get that. Like the war, like those warband-scale games where you have individual members developing skills and accumulating injuries and thus kind of generating personalities themselves, and it's all very emergent, and it's all very exciting, and that, to me, is in the same kind of ballpark as a lot of trad RPGs. You know, you're a breath away. If you start playing yeah, Necromunda yeah, yeah. or Mortimer or Gorkamorka and doing funny voices, Frostgrave is a great one for this as well. They're like, you know, Frostgrave is a breath away from being an RPG. And I suppose, yeah. like, since we're talking about Games Workshop stuff, you know, there's, there's always been in the back of my head, whenever I sit down to try and make a game work, there's always this thought about Games Workshop's Inquisitor and how it just didn't quite stick the landing, and yet has become so enduring. The moment it gets, the moment it got nudged into the scale that people already had wargaming stuff for, it's yep. it's endured. But the product as it originally existed was doomed, and it was partly because I remember the the, you know, the first, last, and only time I really got to play Inquisitor anything like properly was it was in a Games Workshop shop and we were standing on opposite sides of the table and that's the framework for competitive wargaming and just trying to get that yeah. switch to go off, to go back to where yeah. it should be in my head and say it's not like that, it's not like that was surprisingly difficult. Yeah. But I think Necromunda, yeah. Necromunda and its ilk and Frostgrave and... Um, Oh, what's the other one? Um, not Skuldred. I mean, I've got to name drop Skuldred because it's brilliant. But but all of those games, they still have the kind of the, the competition framework. There's a scenario here and someone's going to win and someone's going to lose. And so it functions in that sort of self-generating war game yeah, paradigm. Yeah. 
Oh, God, that's self-generating and paradigm. What have I got? I've got paradigm. I've got lenses. We're doing well here. You're doing really well on my bingo, yeah. So um. <laughs> I wanted the Jared Sinclair thing where I can just pontificate for about half an hour, tell yeah, everyone that they're doing that's it on my wrong sheet and as still well. somehow yeah. end up being an indie darling. <laughs> that's the dream. That's all I ever really. want to be, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, kudos, really, because the like Inquisitor and Necromunda are... You, I wouldn't say it goes so far as to say they were big inspirations, but they were sort of turning points, at least in that, I don't know, mid-teen awkward geek phase where it could go either way. And there's that point at which I think people decide maybe they don't want to do Warhammer anymore. And I think I probably made that decision, but went down a different track. No, I get, you know, I, get, I, get, I, definitely, I definitely get that. Like, you, yeah, you know, you, you don't have to take anything from a game systemically for it to have been a turning point as you say in how you play yeah and i suppose yeah and there is there, there is always a sense as well that i you know I, and I really really hope that we're all making the kind of things that we want to play and that it's driven towards a kind of i use the words play and playfulness an awful awful lot in the research rather than game because i think it's the play in hand that's really important and once you've figured out what kinds of play you like, you're much, much more able to choose and to adapt games that enable that kind of play going forward. I mean, there's so much to unpack there. <laughs> like, genuinely, I think that's so... I mean, obviously, you're doing a PhD on it, but it's so interesting. And, like, uh, I think about what my partner does, which is uh, working in early years and thinking about play in that context as well. And it's so interesting that it's the sort of seen as uh, a leisure activity but for kids it's absolutely essential and i think it's essential for grown-ups as well you know oh, <laughs> there's God, a reason definitely. that the video games market is so enormous uh it's because play and playfulness are so rewarding and so redeeming for a lot of people for everybody maybe yeah no, absolutely and so, yeah, I mean, you know, your partner is in early years is interesting and Jermaine here because I mean I used to be a teacher as well before I started off on all this caper and I was forever looking for ways to introduce more play like activities into teaching young adults I, 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 I trained in uh, 14 to 19 and adult ed and I always wanted that to be more playful right yeah I trained as a drama teacher that's a huge kind of element of what i do when i'm making or playing or studying games as well you know there's this tendency in game studies to borrow critical tools from other media forms and apply them because game studies itself is still relatively new and like doesn't have a vastly developed armory and i have all armory armory toolbox dear god you know, you can't get away from the war games they're they're inside you <laughs> I was a frustrated theatre kid. I was allowed to do drama A-level, but the idea of pursuing it as a career was heavily discouraged. And I trained as a drama teacher to kind of sneak back into it to the back door. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of... There's always this sense of um, games masters and storytellers and dungeon masters and whatever you want to call them. You know, the referee, the host. That figure is often described as a frustrated novelist. And I've always sort of said, no, I'm a frustrated dramaturg. I want to be a I want to be a playwright and I want to be a director and because I've not really had the opportunity to pursue that professionally it flows and it trickles back in through the way I approach games. Yeah. Yeah. That was a very long-winded way of me to just basically say it's like theater. I really like theater of the mind as a term. We spoke to someone a few months ago at the time of this release uh who is also a I I don't know what you would call it in the states but a secondary school teacher mm -hmm. <laughs> um who basically wants to do modules of games de game design for um english major students in high school and like Ooh. that's great how fascinating like go ahead and do that introduce game design but narrative game design not mechanical game design like people think game design is and yeah so, it's so interesting and like you can teach people to make games as a lens for looking at fiction because it's all genre emulation isn't it so oh that's good you can teach so much about 
genre and about um kind of the the writing and yeah god the writing process as well because oh yeah and like tropes and cliches like that is what drives genre fiction forward right yeah and if you are looking at those particular tropes and cliches well you know maybe teach kids that actually they're kind of fun and if you make a if you make a power by the apocalypse game obviously you don't call it that because it sounds kind of goofy but if you make a power by the apocalypse game as a class project that could be super super fun like as a way to kind of disassemble shakespeare or as a way to disassemble I don't know, The Catcher in the Rye or whatever of these other books that kids study nowadays. Oh, I sound really old now. But whatever book <laughs> kids study nowadays, maybe that's um, maybe that's an interesting way to approach it. Maybe that's an interesting way to angle. I wish I thought of that years ago when I was teaching A-level English for a while because I would have I would have loved to have met a Chaucer at, at Canterbury Tales RPG. Oh right my goodness, itself. that sounds so cool, yeah. <laughs> that, one's, that, that one's gone on the back burner. That'll come out in uh, five to ten years' time and I've had a chance to think it through properly. It does take me forever to think through an idea, you know. So it's, it's you know it's something that I've it's, it's something I, I notice particularly when particularly with San Hanaro as well because there's you know there's there are you know there, there are people there like yourself and like um, Dia Rose who are just always you've all you're always making things you know you've always got another concept for a game to bang out and it I spend years sort of chipping away at one idea and it's sort of incubating it to kind of go well if i'm gonna do this i don't want to be the mediocre white man that everyone's pointing and laughing at on twitter this week so it's i've got to make sure you know i want to make sure that it's baked all the way through yeah and it's oh god it it just takes so long but i'm proud of them when they're done but like for me it's kind of uh recreational um i'm doing it because i find it really relaxing to write games i find it like very interesting to think about how people might play them and usually i have an idea and i know that in a week or two i'm not going to have that idea anymore i'm going to have lost it so if i don't write it down quickly it's gone Ah. Um, so like i have lots of ideas and i would say maybe a tenth of them come to fruition that's why working for san genaro is i'm really pleased that you pronounce it in the spanish way um it's so cool because it gives you an opportunity to write a game every three months and that's um, <laughs> that's really cool and you, you have a deadline and if you don't make that deadline then your game doesn't get published and that's you know that's horrifying up enough of a prospect to like actually motivate me to do it uh so i think that everybody should give themselves deadlines <laughs> well i'll come back to the santanaro thing in a second um it's funny you should talk about deadlines and blood spell because of course blood spell is a cursed game to an extent in that it has n- no so no, the first one was three months late this one is shaping up to be at least six uh, it's just right the game is not the game wasn't particularly difficult to write but getting the act together and sort of doing the layout for it took a while the illustrations always take a while because yeah Roe, who illustrated the first one and who's working who's currently working on the uh, character portraits for the second one Roe's great but ill all the time and so right you know and i'm ill all the, you know i'm you've got, you've got two chronically ill people on in different time zones sort of w- working past each other a lot of the time and then every so often we're both awake and healthy and in the right headspace to do something and then we'll sit down online for a couple of hours and there'll be a lovely piece of art done at the end of it and i'll be going okay this is great yes i know exactly what story that's going to tell i know where it's going to go in the book it's going to be fantastic and it's just a question of those moments happening often enough to actually get the wretched thing finished. Sure, so I like sure. I like to set myself deadlines with uh, the caveat that I'm almost never going to hit them. Well, I mean, like you and I both work for the uh, Short Games Digest, and you know that we also never hit our deadlines. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> we do look. We do our best with that, and it's. <laughs> And I, I, I feel like we've always managed to get... We, we've not missed one, have we? There's been a digest every quarter. There's been a digest every quarter. Last month it was... Uh, last quarter it was late. Uh, not last quarter. Two quarters back it was late, but that was not our fault. And also it was the middle of a pandemic, so we'll let everybody off there. Yeah. I mean, wait, 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 was that the one of which we were nominally in charge as well? 
yes, embarrassingly, we were nominally in charge of that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, okay, you know what? So actually, since we're talking about this, since we're talking about kind of the in, the indie sphere and Santanaro and all that, and we're talking about setting yourself deadlines and the the work that's involved. Um, do you do you mind if I talk about that a little bit? Because I want to kind of get this idea out there, and it does involve talk. It does involve going inside the well at San Hanaro a little bit. And I'm going to try and pin as much of this on myself as possible. Sure. Well, no, let's do it. Let's do it because we don't. Okay. Just, uh, we haven't actually had anyone from San Hanaro on here for quite a long time talking about it. So let's okay. let's just let's just plug that again because it's a big part of my life. <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's a really really good sort of design project to be involved in because what it's encouraged me to do is to to take a kind of a mechanic an idea i have for a system and go right make a self-contained game out of that and do it in do it in two months yeah and that's it's not the way that i usually create but it has been weirdly stimulating and it has let me kind of pick up something that i'm half interested in doing and going right let's let's experiment with this let's see if we can hang a whole game off that and sure. the act of doing that makes me understand that system a lot better. And so yeah. like that was that's an enormously valuable experience and I love it. And then a couple of goes round ago, I thought, right, no, I I want to take you know, I've I'm I'm on I'm on furlough, I've got nothing else to do. I want to take on a more significant role in the project and I want to be lead developer for an issue of the digest and i peter principled myself with that so hard because i not to blow my own trumpet here but i think i'm a pretty damn good writer and editor and proofreader and i can do For that sure, definitely fine. and i'm quite good at sort of infrastructure and systems but i'm an awful awful art director I have no idea how to brief an artist or how to manage an artist other than kind of leaning in and going you're still doing that art and that's about as good as it gets. And so the back end of that digest under my stewardship fell apart because I had no idea even what was the language of the people I was supposed to be managing. Like especially when it got to especially when it got to layout. And so having someone else naming no fingers and pointing no names, but we've kind of already done it. So I realized being coy about it's not going to help anybody any. Like the fact, like if you hadn't been there, that one wouldn't have happened. Well, possibly. <laughs> Well, I certainly wouldn't have been able to bung it out on my own. It, it, yeah, because you know, I just I'd gone out of my out of my remit, out of my lane, out of my comfort zone, and out of my depth by the end of that one. But like two two things with it, really. I mean, like it's an excellent space to try and get these tools, and these tools are really important in indie because you are often operating as a person by yourself or yeah. as a person in charge of multiple freelancers and that's great because it gives you other people access to other people who have done this before so it gave us access to olivia hill for instance and um philomena young uh and that's super cool like that's excellent that's really useful um and you know i wouldn't have ever dreamed that i could do creative lead on a project like that so that's great i mean the second thing as well is that because we have this cooperative structure rather than having a hierarchical structure if you had been an executive paid to do that role and you failed in that which you didn't but if you if you had like dropped the ball on it that project would have tanked absolutely tanked and in this case what we had was a set of people who were willing to step up and say sure we don't mind let's just carry on with it because we think it's worthwhile to finish it and that everybody is working together to produce something because nobody gets paid unless everybody gets paid is really cool yeah the the kind of left-wing politics of it makes it great the other great thing about that is that speaking as someone who has now found their limits to an extent it's really great that there are so many spaces in indie rpg dev at the moment where you don't have to do everything you don't have to be a solo artist and you know you don't have to teach yourself to do art and layout and marketing and all the bits that i'm not particularly good at and it's it's so enabling if you're not a polymath i think because if if you have to be a polymath to get a game out then there are fewer games in the world because there are people like me who are just better at one or two bits of the process than anything else and don't have 
I don't believe in talent. You know, talent is just pursued interest, but who don't have the interest or good a starting point to do the rest of it because you know i you know i've I, you know, i've tried i've tried drawing i've tried illustrating and i could get decent at it but the amount of work it would take to get decent at it is too much at this stage and you know so yeah. Yeah, layout yeah. yeah was you know layout now that i've discovered canva i can do layout because that's a right. lovely simple interface and it's browser based and I can I can knock yeah you know, I can knock pages together at the moment you know, said the, the thing that I was doing before um, I spoke to spoke with you this evening was um, putting together a four page spread for the next issue of in play which is the FKR collectives zine and that's been really really fun to see take off considering that 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 was another one of those that was another one of the things that just happened because there was a critical mass of excited people in the same yeah, space yeah, at the yeah, same yeah. time you know th- you know and with that one it's kind of well okay i can't do i can't do the art myself but i can do everything else i can write the text and i can lay it out and i can proofread other people's and i don't have to do any of the stuff that is difficult and boring and not rewarding for me and that i wouldn't do a very good job of anyway because there's another because it's another collective space and there's yeah. you know there, there are people there who are better at doing those jobs and more inclined to doing those jobs though that work yeah yeah absolutely i will just bang it out and i think that's fantastic you know and it's i don't yeah. put out many games by myself because then you know, the, because the the, na- the nature of the beast is that i don't have all of the skills involved and i can't always afford to bring in someone who does that said it's going to be interesting going forward to the next one because uh, we finally have a drawing tablet in the house and my partner is a very good illustrator so the next one should be a lot smoother well that's really cool i like um i feel the same about stan canaro and i feel the same about um the zine project that i'm involved with as well so it's really heartening to see that there's all these small spaces building up and that, you know, people like Nam of Sandy Pug Games are actually promoting this idea as of collective creativity as a really viable way to make a games company, to use the word company in a sort of horrible, loose sense. Yeah, I definitely think it's a, it's a really good path for people to take. Yeah, and it's certainly better than the alternatives, which, you know, I, you know I, as you said, the fact that they're there wasn't a kind of room for executive failure with that digest. There isn't someone at the top who is raking in six figures. Yeah, I think another sort of benefit of those creative spaces as well is that nobody has to kind of go cap in hand to the executive director and beg for work. And what actually got me started in all of this um, and what kind of deflected me from being a contributor to the Storyteller's Vault or whatever, was um, when I first started touting for work with kind of mid-sized RPG companies as just another copywriting gig that I could be doing. The, the, the companies that got back to me at all were still saying something like, well, you're going to have to take it, which they were basically telling me they'd have to, I'd have to take an 80% pay cut if I wanted to work for them. And I thought, no, jog on. Yeah, absolutely. Your creativity is worth more than that, right? Yeah, and I just I just find it bizarre that you can be running a company that has, in many respects, a license to print money and so dramatically undervalue the actual labour that makes that possible. And that's what I really, really like about this turn to the co-op model in indie spheres. You've already said it, and I think you nailed it perfectly, that no one gets paid unless everyone gets paid. And there isn't a single point of failure and there isn't a single point of profit there. And I think that's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And it's it's great fun as well. And you meet cool people and like we're all sharing skills. Like sometimes maybe I feel like I could have a go at illustrating. No, I can't even I can't even say it. <laughs> Pretty much it's a very wonderful model and it's how I met you. I'm just here to tell everybody to look out for John and to give them work if you can, because they're a very good copy editor. And to look out for Bloodspell when it comes out because it's going to be very cool and it's going to have a whole lot of great illustrations from a very talented artist and a lot of good stuff from a very talented writer. So, yeah. So, John, do you want to tell us where we can find you on the internet? Absolutely. Uh, The main place to look for sort of serious game dev type stuff is malediction.games. There's a link 
from that website um the top bar on there will link you to the itch page it'll link you to the humanities commons archive where all the research that i'm allowed to publish by myself lives anything i do to do with games you will be able to find off the off the front page of that site somehow so point yourself to malediction.games and that'll sort you out awesome i encourage everybody to go and check that out and yeah so thank you once again very much for coming on yes indeed pod and we'd love to have you back again to talk about your next big project i mean i guess that'll be in like five ten years time (laughs) thank you for having me goodbye thanks for listening and thanks again to john for the interview as always you can find all of the links in the episode description The previous episode in the feed was the first of the ZineQuest Indeed interviews with creators who are doing ZineQuest. At the time of recording, I've done 15 and a half interviews, with one and a half more lined up. They'll be coming out all through the month, and they focus on the very, very cool things that creators are up to this time around. Here's the list so far. Natalie Ash and Madeline Ember with Corpsewake Cove and The Savage Garden. Jason Price with The Complicated Profession. Con Martin with Two Summers. CM Rubsart with This Night on the Rooftops. Georgie Batts with Exquisite Polycule. Duane Figueroa Soul with Noctis Labyrinth, Nick Bate with Stealing the Throne, Chris Bissett with the D36 Zine, Trinity Knot Studios with Docks of Caswarren, Adira Slattery with Tension, The Edinburgh Indie Games Club Zine, Gabriel Robinson with Token, Blackfisk Publishing with Blood Feud, Alex Reinhardt with Gratitude, a horror game, Eduardo with Little Katie's Tea Party, and Craig with Project Cassandra. It's going to be a wild ride, so please stay tuned and show these creators some love. I'm also running a Kickstarter campaign myself for one of my first role-playing games, A Loud Noise in a Quiet Place, which is a game about my experiences of temporary hearing loss. This is a deeply personal project of which I'm really proud, and I'd be stoked if you could help me get it into print. Please check out the link in the episode description, follow along and back if you're able between February the 12th and the 26th. If you enjoy Yes Indeed Pod, please rate and review the show wherever you find your podcasts, or consider donating through the Ko-Fi page at ko-fi.com slash yesindeedpod. Of course, you can always reach out to me through Twitter at YesIndeedPod. That's Y-E-S-I-N-D-I-E-D-P-O-D. I'd love dearly to hear from you. Lastly, music credits. Intro music is by my amazingly talented friend Gemma Hooper, and the outro music and interstitials are from BitQuest by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com and Filmmusic.io. Thank you, Gemma and Kevin. Until next time, remember, does indie need you? Yes, indeed.